Thank you for engaging today's message with Wind River Community Church. Our prayer for you is that you will encounter Christ and grow in your relationship with Him. May this encourage you in connecting with other people who follow Jesus as well as knowing you are not alone. If you would like prayer, please text us at 307-240-8742 or if you would like more information about this program or past messages, visit our website at windriverchurch.com. I look forward to hearing what God is doing in your life. And now, here is today's message. Um, We have a number of new people here who may not know um, about my relatives. Um, I'm both Norwegian and Swedish. Um, The Swedish side is the brilliant side. And uh, so that really doesn't show up in my DNA that much. But I am Norwegian. I'm, I'm Norwegian enough to where I eat lutefisk and pickled herring and all those really good things. There you go. Now we're talking. Now we got some real believers in the house. So I have a couple of uh, relatives, distant relatives. Their names are Ole and Sven. And um, sometimes I just need to uh, enlighten you as to what's going on with my family. And so... Uh, the good news is that Ole and Sven got hired by the maintenance department at the local community college where they live back in Minnesota. And they're really excited about getting this new job because it looks like it has good uh, prospect for them. But the other day, in the email that they sent me, they said that their first job at the community college was to uh, purchase a new rope for the flagpole out in front of the college. And of course, they were standing there looking up at the flagpole and looking at the top of it, trying to figure out what they were going to do, when up walks a uh, blonde Swedish gal that goes to the uh, community college, and she said, what are you fellas doing? And they're going, well, we're, we're looking at this pole because we have to replace the rope on it. This is what Sven said to the young lady. He said, we have to replace the rope on this pole, so, uh, but we don't have the ladder to find out how high it is. And so she said, oh. And she, she reached into her purse and pulled out a wrench and undid a couple of bolts at the bottom of the flagpole, took it, leaned it over, put her wrenches back into the, her purse and pulled out a tape measure. She went over and hooked it on the bottom, stretched it out and measured it. And she says it's 21 feet, six inches long. She pulled it back up, put it back in the purse and off she went. And Oli started laughing and Sven goes, what's so funny? He goes, Oh, those blonde-headed Swedes. She gave us the length, and we needed the height. (laughs) Some of you going like... (laughs) In about 20 minutes, you'll hear them laugh. You'll know that they got it. Well, you know what the good news is? Is that God is a good God. And he looks after all the people of the world, including the Sven and Olis of our world. They need all the help they can get. But the, good, the really better news is, is that God doesn't, isn't interested in just helping us when we've got it going right in our lives. When, when we've, we seem to have everything kind of figured out. That's not when God shows up. God really shows up when we need him the most. And right now, our world needs God to show up. As you know, the little man 
uh, Vladimir Putin decided to send his troops into Ukraine and invade them for a land grab. He's trying to build his small K kingdom. And, and all that that does is it just sets the world on edge because we know that there's going to be bloodshed, that lives are going to be lost, that, that this isn't something that needed to happen. It could have been avoided completely, but because there are evil people out there, wicked people, who want to take and rule and keep people under their thumb, they will just go ahead and do whatever they want to do. And so part of that happens is, is when this happened with Putin, what he did, the Bible speaks clearly that what his actions are all about are the things that God absolutely hates. In Proverbs 6, it tells us the things that God hates. It says, there are six things, no, seven things that God detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in the family. Putin fits this description of the things God hates. Does God hate Putin? No. He hates the things that he's done. Because to have haughty eyes is to have an arrogant demeanor or an overall attitude of one's heart that causes one to scorn or look down on those around him. The haughty person sets himself up above everybody else. Matter of fact, he thinks the universe rotates around him, that he's the center of the universe. And it gives no accord to what other people think or what God's will is. He thinks that he's above God in everything. And the problem is, is that what the Bible teaches us about haughty eyes and pride is that it is the tree trunk of the, of the tree that branches out every other sin. So you just think about it. The sin of bloodshed, the sin of feet that are racing to do evil, all comes from someone who is prideful with haughty eyes. It, it's, it's this unbelievable thing that they're doing. There is nothing that they want, that they would say is unlawful or immoral. And so they go after that. So what's God going to do with a guy like Putin? What's God going to do with our world, which now sits on the cusp of yet another world war? I mean, this, this, is, this has changed everything for us. So what's God going to do? I mean, we're going to have to hold our breath, or what are we going to... What are we going to, we're, God is going to do what God always does. God does the impossible, and God does something that none of us ever think about. He steps in in a way and changes the hearts and lives of people. He, he, he does stuff that we couldn't even imagine, and when he does it, we go like, wow, I never saw that one coming. And then the reason he does it is a twofold purpose. First of all, he does it for his own glory. And the second of all, he does it so that people have a chance now to give their hearts to Jesus and to get right with him, to step into relationship. 
You know how I know that's what God's going to do? Because at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph had been made the second highest person in charge of everything in Egypt, and Egypt was the powerhouse of the world. They could go and take whatever they wanted because they were so mighty. But Joseph had control of, of all of that, and he brought his dad and his brothers, the entire family, up to Egypt because they were going to go through a famine had hit, and so he was looking after his brothers. But when his dad, Jacob, passed away, his brothers, who had thrown him in a pit and sold him off to slavery to Egypt, they thought now Joseph, because dad was dead, was going to take revenge on them. And I love the words that Joseph spoke to his brothers to calm their hearts and their fears. He said to them, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And that's exactly what God's going to do with this whole thing in Eastern Europe. You watch. You pay attention. You take a look. And you watch what, what comes out of all of this stuff you're going to see more people come to Christ in Europe. You're going to see more lives changed. You're going to see the hearts of Americans moved by what's taking place. And it's all going to be for the glory of God and the fact that people need Jesus more now than ever. We, we've come to this place in our lives where everything just seems to be falling apart and we just don't have a good handle on how to deal with stuff. And we just don't know what's going to take place or how it's ever going to change. But yet what we do know is we've got a history with God. The history with God is that he cares deeply about every person that walks on planet Earth doesn't matter whether you are a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Catholic or if you're a self-proclaimed atheist. God cares for you. You know how we know that? Because in, in Psalms 145, he, the psalmist gives us an idea about what God has for us. It says that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all... His mercy is over all that he has made. Theologically, we would call that the general grace of God. In other words, if I were to put it in another biblical term, God makes it to rain on the just and the unjust alike. He makes the sun to shine on the unjust and the just alike. He gives crops. He gives health. He gives uh, all kinds of things in order for us to survive. He's not picking and choosing. He says this is for all of humanity because of his great love for everyone. We have been listening to Jesus have a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this um, Jewish religious leader. He is of the upper echelon of the upper echelon in Israel. Matter of fact, they would see him as being the ultimate place of authority, knowledge, wealth, wisdom, everything. I mean, you have the guy that you want to be like. Nicodemus is the guy. But he's got an ache in his heart. He's got a longing deep inside of him where he's going, 
what I know about God and the things I've experienced in my life, I think that there's more than what I've, than what I've experienced. I think there's more than what I know. And so he watched Jesus in the temple as Jesus did a, a number of things. One first thing he did is he cleared the temple of everything that was a distraction from allowing people to come and know God in a deep way. The second thing he did is miraculous signs, healings and, and casting out demons and making whole families whole and giving people purpose. He did all of that in one day. And Nicodemus, he was watching it. He's like, I've got to find out more. So he went to Jesus and he had a conversation with Jesus. And where we left off in that conversation last week is where Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you want to get to the kingdom of God, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have got to be born again. And Nicodemus is mystified about that. Not, not in the fact that he doesn't understand what it, what it means to be born again, because he understood when someone was brought into and they converted to Judaism, they had a saying that now they have become like a little child, a new baby. All things become new to them. That was a saying that they had among the rabbis and the teachers and the leaders of the Jewish nation when someone converted to Judaism. So it wasn't a foreign concept. He understood it. But, but what it was is, how does this take place? How is God going to do a new work right now? Because we, we Jews, we're the ones that have all the understanding. We have the clarity about who God is. And we're the ones that are supposed to be teaching. And now, Jesus, you're telling me that I need to be born again? How's that going to happen? We might have the same question about Russia or about the Ukraine. How is God's glory going to penetrate wicked and evil hearts in Ukraine and in Russia? How is God going to make Jesus famous in that place? Because we, from, from where we stand and from what we know, it's an impossibility. We just don't think it's going to happen. It, it, it's beyond our capability to see it. And the problem with that is, is, is because we only have the ability to look at things through our lenses, through the filter of our mind, of the way that we see the world, the way that we process all the information. That's the only way we look. And God goes, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are totally different than your thoughts. So what we need to do is say, God, Open my eyes to see what you're doing. I want to see through your lens what you're going to be doing. And so Nicodemus is like, how are you going to do this, Jesus? So then Jesus gives him an insight as to the greatness of God. And, and here's what he said. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this is the most famous verse in the Bible. You know it's famous because it shows up at every NFL football game. <laughs> right there behind the goalpost. John 3.16, that's all they say. And, and most people are going like, what's John going to be doing at 316. I mean, it's like, you know, 10 after 2. He has to wait that long? 
And then they go like, oh, maybe that's a Bible verse. And then they look it up. And that's what they find. Now, here's the interesting thing about this verse. Jesus absolutely blew Nicodemus' mind on this thing. Because what Jesus did right here in this little verse, he absolutely, Jesus did this amazing thing. He capsulizes everything about God in one verse. From Genesis to Revelations, this is it right here. You, you, can't, you can't get anything that gives you a clearer picture of who God is and what Jesus came to do. So Nicodemus is going like, is he, you know, he hears Jesus say, for God so loved the world. At that moment, Nicodemus is like, what do you mean God loves the world? See, he, he, he was, he, he's the upper echelon in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. He knows the scripture, which would have been the Old Testament, gener, uh, Genesis all the way to Malachi. He knows everything about it. He knows the Psalms and the Proverbs. He knows the, um, the political books. He knows the historical books. And what he knows is, is that at one point, God called Abraham. And he said, I am going to make a great nation out of you. And, and I'm going to set you aside. And this great nation is going to be for my purposes and for my use and for my glory. And so Nicodemus goes, God loves Israel. God loves Jews. He doesn't love the Romans. He doesn't love any of the Gentiles. He doesn't love anybody else. He only loves the Jews because that's what he was taught. That's what he was told to believe. And the problem is, is that whoever did the teaching to Nicodemus didn't give him the full counsel of God. Because God loving the world is, is smeared all over. It's a thread that runs all the way from Genesis, all the way to Revelation. And it is God's love for the world. And so when, when he says, God so loved the world, Nicodemus is going, what do you mean God loves the world? And then Jesus is like, you should know this. Because the reason why God called Israel, all the Jews, to be his own people, he set them aside so that they would be the ones who would point every other nation, every other country, every other human being on planet earth, that the Jews would be going, that's God, and we worship him and him alone, and what you need to do is you need to come and you need to worship the one true God. Because he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is a good God. Israel lost their primary purpose. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. So when, when Jesus told Nicodemus, God so loved the world, Nicodemus is like, what? Are you kidding me? So... Nicodemus is like, I don't, I don't understand what it means for God to love the world. And, and what I want you to understand is, is the word world here is used over 180 times just in the New Testament. And every time that word is used, what it refers to is it refer, refers to the 
natural or the fleshly condition of every human being. It's worldly. In other words, it's infected by sin. And, and without the work of the loving God, the world has no chance. They have no, no ability to make any changes. Matter of fact, Paul, he told the Roman church in chapter 12 of Romans, he said, don't copy the behavior or the customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. You see, Paul understood it. Paul was a Pharisee at one time. He was at the same level of understanding, of knowledge, of teaching, of direction that Nicodemus is. He and Nicodemus would have been um, at the same meetings together. That's, Paul was brilliant. But Paul understood God's love for all of the world. So, here's another thing that Jesus did because he uses the same meaning in 3.16 as Paul did in Romans 12 when he said world. It's talking about the sinful condition of every person that walks on planet earth. And so here Jesus has the, gives the authoritative information that reveals the glory of this verse. Not only does God love the world, but he demonstrates. It's, it's one thing to give lip service to something, but it's another thing to say it and then to prove it. And so God proves it. Because God so loved the world that he did what? Say it again. He gave. God gave. Have you ever thought about that? God is a generous God. He gives, he, he doesn't just give. He doesn't just go like, okay, well, you know, shoot, what do I have to get? Yeah. All right, here, Billy, you can have this used, slightly used. No? No? Well, God wants me to give it to you. He wants you to have this. No? Okay, well, I'll put it back. You see, that's not the kind of giving God gives. God is generous beyond all of our... How do we know He's generous? Because when God gave, He gave the best gift and the most costly gift. What did he give? He gave his son. Say it. His I, I'm telling you right now, we have the brightest and most brilliant church in all of Lander. And you just proved it. Thank you. Yeah, he gave his son. Now, when, when Jesus says, For God gave his one and only son... Jesus isn't talking about some little created being. He's not talking about something, someone who was born. He's not talking about that, that Father God in heaven got together with Mother God in heaven and they created this spirit baby up in heaven and he came to earth. That's not it at all. What, what, 
What Jesus is talking about when he says his only son, he's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ who always existed. He, he was, he is, and he is yet to come. That's who Jesus is talking about. He's saying there's an eternal person named Christ, and I am he, Jesus, and I have always existed. I was there before the world was formed. Matter of fact, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they lived in perfect love, perfect community, perfect harmony. Do you know what they needed? Nothing. We get messed up because we go like, oh, Jesus, you need me. And he's going, I've never needed you, but I want you. And that's a difference. You see, and so he gave, he gave the most precious thing ever, his eternal son. He gave him to us. And, and it goes on to say that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That belief thing that he's talking about, he's not talking about, well, I, you know, yeah, I believe that, that Jesus exists. He's not talking about the fact that you believe that Jesus actually came to earth, walked among us, and that he, he did some really cool things. No, what he's saying is, is that you believe, when you believe in Jesus, you're believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. You, you can't have it any other way. If you say you believe in Jesus, then what you're saying is, I believe in you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin and to be the Lord of my life, because I need a savior. Right now I'm perishing. I'm dying. I'm not going to survive this. I'm headed for an eternal destination that I don't think I want to go to. And you're the only one that can rescue me. You're the only one that can help me. You're the only son. And Jesus confirmed all of that. What the father said, uh, you know, I love you so much that I'm going to give you my only son. Jesus confirmed what, Jesus, what, what the Father said about him. Because Jesus later in, in John says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm telling you, that is awesome news for us. Because when we do that, we are promised whoever believes in him will have eternal life. But you have to believe in him to be your savior. So, but what Jesus also says about us believing in him is it's never our 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 idea to love God. You don't wake up one day and go like, light bulb, I need to love God. That, that just doesn't happen. What happens is it's all on God. He does it for you. He, he, he comes to you and he goes like this. He, he kind of gives you an elbow and goes, hey, hey. And you, go, you, you kind of like stirred and you're going, what? And you don't know it's the father, but it's the father going, that guy over there, that's Jesus. 
You need him. Go get him. And you're like, huh? What? Because sometimes we're just not that bright. I mean, you might be the brightest in Lander, but it's still Lander. Here's how we know that, because in John chapter 6, Jesus said this, For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I'll raise them up. You see, the Father is involved in this whole process of anybody coming to faith. That's why one of the things that you need to do when you think about people who are far from God, is you need to say to God, you need to say, Start calling them. Give them a nudge. Because that's what, that's what the Father does. When we go like, man, I know, and they need Jesus so bad, you go, Father, would you just start to call on their life? Draw them to Jesus. And, the Father, and Jesus is going like, Dad, did you hear that? They're, they're wanting you to get involved in their life so that they'll come to know me. Would you start to call them? And the Father goes, Yoo-hoo! Right here! This is Jesus! And you know what most people do? They go, Uh, that can't be it. Because that's just way too easy. That's too simple. I confess my sin and ask Jesus to be Lord. No. You know what? I think what it needs to be is I need to participate in this process. God needs to see how great I really am and how privileged he would be to have me on his team. So I have to show myself as being, you know, really worthwhile of coming to this whole thing. And we try to make the process and the work of the Spirit of God and the salvation that Jesus brings to us all about us. Because pride is still running rampant in our lives. In the sixth chapter of John, there's this really awesome thing that takes place that puts on full display the power, the majesty, the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus took his disciples and they went down to the lake and I think that they were playing ultimate frisbee, maybe a little bit of frisbee golf, and they're just hanging out down at the lake. They're going to do some fishing. They're going to have a little picnic. They're going to hang out. Jesus was going to give them some deeper teaching. But all of a sudden, the crowds started to show up. And it wasn't like a crowd like this, because you're a crowd. You're a really good crowd. But when the crowd showed up, the Bible tells us that there were 5,000 men. So each one of those men would bring their wife, and then you know their seven little kids would come traipsing along. And they're sitting down, and Jesus is teaching them, and Jesus, highly perceptive about the crowd, he reads the crowd better than anybody, he looks at his disciples and says, they're hungry, we need to feed them. And they're going like, 
There isn't a store within 50 miles that would be able to feed this many people. Jesus says, well, what are you going to do about it? One of the disciples goes, well, little Billy, his mommy sent him with a bag lunch, and it's got five loaves and two fishes. What do you think, Jesus? Jesus goes, well, hand it to me. So Jesus takes it, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives a little bit to, to John. He gives some to Peter, to Nathaniel, to all the disciples. He says, now go and, go and hand it out and feed the people. So they just walk down, and they hand it out, and he said, here, here's a piece of bread. Break a piece off and pass it down. And so they do. And then it goes back and forth, and they're handing the fish out the same way, and they're passing it back and forth. And when everybody's done eating, and everybody has their fill, then Jesus says, grab those baskets over there and go pick up the leftovers, because we're not going to waste any of this. And so the disciples go, and they gather 12 baskets of leftover food. And, and everybody's going like, that was awesome. And so Jesus is like, to his disciples, he's going like, all right, you guys come over here. It's been a big day of ministry. I know you guys are worn out. You don't want to talk to these people. They, don't, they want to talk to you, but you need to get out of here. You need to go rest. So take the boat, go to the other side of the lake. They go, okay, we'll see you on the other side. And then Jesus turns around, and the Bible tells us that Jesus perceived that the crowd was going to take him by force and make him king. Why? Because he just fed them. So Jesus goes, peace out. And he goes up on the mountain, and he spends time with his father in prayer. And everybody's going like, where'd he go? And so they all head for home because they got to go to sleep. But in the morning, they come back looking for him. They bring their boats. They go, this is exactly where he was. You can see where everybody sat uh, and trampled up the grass. Where is he? And then somebody said, I saw his disciples go to the other side of the lake. And so they all jumped into their boats and they went to the other side of the lake. And all these people show up on the other side of the lake. And, and, and they're excited because they, they're looking at Jesus and going like, you're the one we're looking for. Because first of all, we don't have to buy food ever again. Can you imagine the banquet? You just say it, Lord. I mean, like, you can turn anything into a magnificent meal. It's going to be awesome. And then you're the guy that can overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus is like, well... You guys, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. And so he says to them, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person up on the last day. And you know what the 12 disciples did? They went, oh, not the flesh and blood speech again. Jesus, don't you know, we've got about 20,000 people here who are willing to follow you. Can you imagine what we can do? Just think of the mega church. Just think of the campus churches we could put up. Just think how we could take over the world with this new thing, the ecclesia that you're putting together. Just think, Jesus, and now you give the flesh and blood talk. They're just going to leave Jesus. 
Matter of fact, in verse 60 of chapter 6, it says, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? And so they're like, Ugh. but you know what? The flesh and blood talk makes people really uncomfortable. Makes us uncomfortable. And that's the point, is that just when you think you've got the inside scoop on how Jesus operates and you've got him finally figured out and that you know exactly what to do to get him to do your bidding and you can get him to, to answer all your prayers, you can manipulate him into doing what you want him to do. All of a sudden, Jesus does something that flips it on, on his head and all of a sudden you're going like, I, oh, where did that come from? And it changes your whole thought process because of what you were thinking was either you were misinformed or you had created your own thought about how Jesus was supposed to operate. And if you create your own thought about how Jesus was supposed to operate, he's no longer God. He's just the God of your own mind. And then what he does, God the Father does, is he pulls up his word and he reveals a revelation from his word to you about who he is, about who Jesus is, and how the Holy Spirit works inside of you. And everything changes because now, with this new revelation, you have to think differently. You have to act differently. You have to talk differently. You have to treat people differently. And it's no longer about how you get God to do something for you. It's now, how am I going to serve God? And that's what happens. Because Jesus is asking for a commitment. He's asking for a strong commitment. He's not just saying, hey, I mean, if you just want to hang out, I'm cool with that. We'll go to the lake. We'll, we'll crack some cold ones open. Pepsi. We'll just hang out. That's not the Jesus. He, he has a mission. He has a plan. He has a desire for your life, and he wants you to get on board. But if you don't want to make the big commitment, he knows. Matter of fact, look at verses 61 through 65. It says, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining they're over here grumbling about the whole thing. They're complaining. He's asking too much of us. He wants me to give more. He wants me to do more. He wants me to commit to stuff. I've got my own life. I've got my stuff to do. I've got a family. How can he ask me for so much? So he said to them, does this offend you? By the way, I love when Jesus offends people. Because when he offends you, it's for a really good reason. Matter of fact, it would probably sound something like this. You could say something like this to Jesus. You know what, Jesus? That was really offensive. Matter of fact, you stepped on my toes with that. You know what Jesus would say? I'm sorry for stepping on your toes. I was shooting for your shins. <laughs> he wants to wake you up. He wants to get you involved in this thing. So then he says... <clears throat> then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort 
accomplishes nothing. And the very words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you don't believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who didn't believe and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, that is why I said people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. You're one of the disciples. You've just heard what Jesus said. What's your response? What's your response to what Jesus said to you about committing to him? Are you all in? Or are you like, ah, you're asking more than what I can give. And you know, when, when that happened, what was going on is people had this idea, this expectation about who Jesus was going to be to them. And when Jesus revealed who he was and what he expected of them, those two worlds were far apart. And it changed what they did. We'll look at the next couple of verses, 66. It says, at this point, get this, at this point, think about it, 20,000 disciples, 20,000 people standing around. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Jesus has got a call out to you today. Jesus has a call on your life. Jesus is saying, I want you. Remember, he's not saying, I need you. He wants you. But if you want him, then there's a cost to it. There was a cost for the Father. God so loved the world that he gave. Now you've accepted. Now you've stepped into it. And Jesus is saying, what are you going to give? Then Jesus turned to the 12 and he asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you're the Holy One of God. When the dust settled, out of 20,000, there were the 12 and a handful more. Because what Jesus is calling us to do isn't easy. What Jesus is saying, I want you to come and I want you to do this with me, it, 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 it takes effort. It takes a commitment in your heart. It takes a resolve that when things really get tough and, and I have to make a decision, am I going to fulfill my own desire or am I going to do what Jesus is calling me to do? Jesus is going to say, you come here first. Because the way he said it in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew is seek first the kingdom of God. And then, all these other things, all of them, all these other things, your family, your career, your hobbies, your wife, your friends, they'll all be added to you. I want you to understand what God really desired, what the purpose of Jesus was. And that goes back to John chapter 3. 
It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Did you get that? Jesus didn't come at that point to condemn the world. But he came in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son. There's this whole thing that happens there. Jesus is, doesn't want anybody to perish and go to hell. He just does, that's not his heart. His heart is that the world, remember that word world, means that the sinful nature of every person on planet earth, he wants every person to know salvation through him, every person. Your boss, your neighbor, your grumpy uncle, every person. Jesus wants them to be saved. He wants them to know the Father. He wants them to have intimacy with God. He wants them to come under the blood of Jesus and have all of their sins washed away. And I know there are a lot of people who just want God just to be the happy grandpa up in heaven. The one who just kind of, you know, you sin and he goes, you shouldn't do that. You are naughty. That's not who God is. He's not the permissive grandpa that just lets you get away with anything you want. But on the other hand, he's not the vindictive old man that's just waiting for you to do something wrong so he can knock the socks off of you. He's not that guy. He's neither one of those. He's the one that so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's the only one capable of providing a way for you. He's the only one that has the ability to draw you in and make you love him. Matter of fact, Paul wrote to the uh, Ephesus church and he said this, but God is so rich in mercy, in mercy. Mercy is that you don't get what you deserve. What do you deserve from God? You deserve his punishment, his wrath. You deserve hell. But in his mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. You get this? I mean, is this, is this helpful? Are you with me? All right, stay with me. Just a couple more minutes, I promise you. Because here's the picture that God wants you to get. That Jesus went to the cross, he shed his blood, he gave his life, but it all got ratified when Jesus was raised from the dead. That was the stamp of approval saying that the sacrifice was sufficient. And because it was sufficient, now we have life. I'm going to close with this story out of the Bible. It's found in Luke Luke 16. And Jesus tells this story. He talks about this very wealthy man who had everything he could ever want in life. If he didn't have it, he could get it. There was nothing that he would deny himself. And right outside of his compound, at the gates into his compound, sat a beggar, and his name was Lazarus. And Lazarus 
begged just for the crumbs that would fall off the rich man's table that he would be fed to him. Not only was Lazarus a beggar and, and just trying to get one meal a day that would sustain him for the next day, but he also had all kinds of sores. He was very sick and he had open wounds and sores. And the street dogs would give him a little relief when they would come by and lick his wounds. One day Lazarus died and the Bible says that the angels took him to heaven to be by Abraham's side. At the same time, the rich man passed away and he died. But he went to Hades, the place of torment. And while the rich man was in Hades, in torment, he looked across the chasm and over there he saw Abraham and he saw Lazarus beside, his, beside uh, Abraham. And then in verse 24 it says, The man shouted... Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. He's still trying to give orders to those who he thinks is beneath him. He, he, he had everything on on earth and he gave a command and it was fulfilled. He told somebody to do something and it was done. And he still has pride ruling in his life even though he is in torment, even though he is in Hades, even though he's over there, he's, at, he's saying, hey Abraham, get that beggar and have him come and help me. And Abraham goes, son, it's not going to help you at all. Remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now here, he's here with me being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's this huge chasm between us. He can't get to you and you cannot come to him. But what's really important is what was not said by the rich man. The rich man, not one single time did he go, Father Abraham, get me out of here. He never asked to be taken out of his anguish. He never was asked to be taken away from his torment. Why is that? Why didn't he ask? Because he was still so prideful about who he was, he did not want to bend his knee and say to God, you are God and I am not. What does that mean for us? It means that there are people in this world who will never say yes to Jesus because pride rules in their life. They will never say yes. They will never go further. They will never want more. What they want more of is for themselves. What they want more is to feed themselves. That's what they want more of. And yet Jesus says, you don't get that. You, you just, if you want more, you have to have me in order to get more. Now, I'm not going to bend my knee. I will not do any of that stuff. I do not want you to be my Lord. I don't think I need to be saved. I think I'm my own Savior. And when they perish, and when they go to hell, they will never ask to be released from hell because they are still their own God. So what does that mean for us?
I'm going to give you two quick verses real fast. In chapter 8 of John, Jesus spoke to the people, and he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. We become the light of Jesus. The gospel of, of God shines through us and it points to the glory of God. Matter of fact, in Matthew 5, this is what Jesus says about us. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, here's the point of it all, is, is that because God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, and Jesus is the light of the world who now dwells inside of me, I become his light to the world. And because of his light shining through, now people will see me and they won't go, look at you, you're so great. They're going to go, look at you, God's so great. We've been given a task to be the light of the world. That's what Jesus wants from us. That's what Jesus says for us. Here's the rub and here's the challenge. We are to let others see the light of Jesus in our lives. That means that there must be some external evidence of Jesus at work in my life. There are people who say they have a relationship with Jesus, but there is little to no evidence of a life that has been changed by Jesus. It really comes down to integrity, spiritual integrity. Spiritual integrity is the state of being undivided together with all the quality of brutal self-honesty. It demands a considerable depth of self-awareness and an uncompromising willingness to be authentic before Jesus and before others. My life isn't perfect. But Jesus loves me and has rescued me and will do the same for you. He will give you a new life and a purpose. Our lives should line up with our belief in God and exhibit a trust that His ways are the best ways. So hey church, here it is. I have one thing for you to do. One, let your light shine. Let the light of Jesus that is in you shine so that others would see the glory of God because God so loved the world that he gave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your goodness is so evident in every aspect of our lives and sometimes we just neglect it. This morning, we're just asking you to do one simple thing, God. Give us that passion. The passion that Jesus has for you. The passion that Jesus has for the world. The passion and love that you have for the world that you gave. Now, because we have received, let us give so the world will see your glory. I pray you would do a mighty work in our lives. That you would stir our hearts. That we would pray for people. We would ask you, Father to go and draw them to be near to you, that you would change their lives, that you would change the trajectory of their spiritual life, that they would come to heaven, that we would plunder hell and populate heaven because of your goodness to us, because you're such a loving God. 
And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And that you have given us life. And we believe. And we trust. So, work in our hearts today. We don't want to be the same tomorrow. We want to go out tonight, today, and we want to be different. We want to love. We want to grow. We want to trust. So we surrender. We give it to you. And we do it for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.